Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts. I'm afraid today's episode may be a little slapdash for some listeners as it's been a crazy couple of weeks with the start of the school year, and for the first time in quite a while, I've decided to quit a book. More on that later, as I'd like to start today's episode with some interesting articles that have grabbed my attention in the last few months. The first being the true story of Roland the Farter and how the internet killed professional flatulence by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie. This can be found on the Atlas Obscura website, and as always, links are in the show notes. Roland, court minstrel to 12th century English King Henry II, probably had many talents, but history has recorded only one. Referred to variously as Roland le Cerceur, Roland le Farter, Roland le Petour, and Roland the Farter, Roland had a re- really had a single job in the court. Every Christmas during the court's riotous pageant, he performed a dance that ended with one jump, one whistle, and one fart executed simultaneously. Side note, I sometimes forget that for much of European history, um, the official language of many courts was French. So it's funny to me to see these French names uh, at an English court. Okay, that's it. Uh, For this, Roland was gifted a manor house in Hemingstone, Suffolk, and more than 100 acres of land for farting on cue. Farts are and have always been funny, an odiferous invisible thread in the rich tapestry of global comic tradition. They are funny in virtually every culture, every language, every era. The oldest joke in the world, according to the University of Wolverhampton, is a fart joke. Something which has never occurred since time immemorial, a young woman did not fart in her husband's lap, would have cracked up the Sumerians of 1900 BC. Master Athenian playwright Aristophanes peppered his comic plays with fart jokes, as did Shakespeare. Geoffrey Chaucer used well-placed farts to puncture pretension in his Canterbury Tales, and at least two stories in The Thousand and One Nights hinge on farts. An ode to a fart in Parliament from 1607 was popular for decades after the fart itself had dissipated. Francois Rabelais' stories of Gargantua and Pantagruel reek of farts. Mark Twain's fart joke, a mock Elizabethan diary entry titled 1601, or Conversation as it was by the social fireside in the time of the Tudors, was long considered unprintable, featuring, as it did, Queen Elizabeth sputtering, Verily, in mine eight and sixty years have I not heard the fellow to this fart. The 1942 Bing Crosby and Bob Hope vehicle, Road to Morocco, got big laughs out of a whoopee cushion gag. In a 2007 interview with the New York Times, Sarah Silverman called fart jokes the sign language of comedy, and her 2009 book is called Eat, Pray, Fart. The World Fart Championships are, or at least were in 2013, a thing in Finland. Farts are funny, and they're everywhere. However, most of that kind of fart humor hinges on the unexpectedness of the fart. 
and the subsequent shock, shame, and giddy embarrassment it engenders. Uh, Side note, the word schadenfreude, happiness at the misfortune of others. Um, So what about Roland and the rare others like him? The performance fartists. The historical record of Roland is rather thin, although the bones of it are likely true. Valerie Allen, professor of literature at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, investigated Roland's story in her 2007 book On Farting, Language and Laughter in the Middle Ages. Roland's timeline was, she said, difficult to determine. He was possibly first in service to King Henry I and then to Henry II. Fee ledgers from the era indicate what kind of payment he received and for what, but don't give dates. A later king, supposed to be Henry III, however, was not as amused by Roland's talent and, on the grounds that the service was indecent, the crown took his land and manor back. This, however, is a timeline that has the poor man farting at court over a period of more than 120 years. Allen notes that Roland's actual history and which of the Henrys actually enjoyed his talents is a matter of mystery. But Roland's story still captivates. Allen is firm about his appeal, he's a much-loved figure, and subsequent historians and chroniclers over the last 900 years have enjoyed retelling the story of Roland the Farter. Farting in the Middle Ages was a more complicated act than in this century. Then, as now, Allen said, much of the humor in farts had to do with anxiety over uncontrollable bodies and the hilarious reminder that everyone, even the loftiest in feudal society, couldn't escape them. But there was a more sober philosophical side to medieval farts, one that isn't so evident today. Gas is the product of decomposition, so morally, theologically, a lot of the writers in the Middle Ages saw it as the mark of death, she says. There was a lot of moralization about farts and shit, that they are the living daily reminder that we are going to die and that's all we are. We are mortal and sinful as well. More the stuff of Sunday sermons than midwinter revels. But Roland's act was also grounded in a tradition of widely varied entertainment at court. Jugglers, fire eaters, storytellers, acrobats, some of them, men and women, performed in the nude. Comedians, music makers, and farters were all part of the medieval performance scene. Irish records from the 8th century list farters as among the types of retainers found at courts and note that their pay should be the fat of the shoulder of hunted prey. At roughly the same time Roland was earning his manor house, a group of Irish farters were described occupying a table at the banqueting hall of the High King of Ireland. Not all performing farters were landowners, cautions Allen, but there was an established, if not profession, at least specialty. I should think that for festive occasions this kind of entertainment was central and necessary and must have involved high degrees of skills, a whole range of performance tricks, she says. They're like circus performers. The tradition appears to go back even further. St. Augustine of Hippo, writing City of God in the 5th century, noted people who could produce at will such musical sounds from their behind, without any stink, that they seemed to be singing from the region. And, like fart humor in general, it's not limited to Western culture. 
In her book, Alan mentions an illustrated scroll based on The King of Farts, a tale from Japan's Kamakura era, 1185-1333, featuring one Fukutomi no Oribe, who performed fart dances for the aristocracy and trumped his neighbor Toda, who tried to mimic the master farter, but soiled himself instead. Also, again, side note, apologies if I mispronounce anything. Uh, that was fiction, but there were actual documented flatulists at work in Japan by the 1700s. During the Edo period, Tokyo streets were full of misimono, attractions that sometimes featured the kind of people who would later populate freak shows. One of the more popular misimono stars was a man called Kirifuri Hanasaki Otoko, meaning the mist descending flower blossom man, who, in 1774, demonstrated his ability to take in quantities of air and release it in modulated flatulent arias, according to the late Professor Andrew Marcus of the University of Washington. Farts were a bit of a thing in the Edo period. A series of illustrated scrolls from the time made by artists unknown is titled Higasen, or Fart Battle, and is precisely, hilariously, what it sounds like it is. The next biggest name in farting was a Findisic Marseille man who called himself Le Petomaine, literally the maniac farter. Young Joseph Pujol, the son of a baker, discovered his talent when swimming near his home on the Côte d'Azur. According to Retro Magazine, he'd just taken a deep breath to dive under the waves when he felt a cold sensation creeping up his back passage. It was seawater, which he'd inhaled with his sphincter. At first, Pujol used his talent to shoot water incredible distances as far as five meters by the time he was an adult, but he soon discovered that he could take in air and release it how he wanted. After a career in the army where his talent naturally blossomed, he began performing at local music halls, tooting out La Marseille and A Claire de Lune and doing impressions. By the time he made it to Paris in 1892, he was already big enough to book a 90-minute show at the infamous Moulin Rouge. He dressed in a tuxedo and announced each sound as if he were presenting a music solo. Of course, the incongruence of a dignified gentleman letting farts only added to the humor, wrote Jim Dawson, music journalist and self-titled fartologist who is the author of Who Cut the Cheese and... Blame It on the Dog, 1999 and 2006, respectively, in an email. Pujol didn't only toot songs and impressions of thunder, he could smoke a cigarette with his bottom and blow out candles and even the gas jets and the footlights. Some women fainted. Lore has it that Moulin Rouge stationed nurses in the aisle, but audience members of both sexes roared with laughter. When not performing at the Moulin Rouge, Le Petomaine did private shows in the nude for curious wealthy gentlemen who wanted to know what was going on under his tuxedo tails. Pujol became one of the best-paid performers in Paris, if not the world, and his exceptional ability was studied by curious physicians. One published a report on Pujol in 1904 fantastically entitled An Extraordinary Case of Rectal Breathing and of Musical Anus. 
Three years after his first performance at Moulin Rouge, however, the club's owner sued Pujol for breach of contract for giving an impromptu performance at nearby at a nearby gingerbread stall. Pujol settled and opened his own nightclub, but his celebrated career was cut short by World War I. He died in 1945 at the age of 88. The story of his life was made into a short film in 1979, starring British comedian Leonard Rossiter. Beloved though Let Petomain was by nearly everyone, this wasn't sophisticated humor. Obviously, in the comedy hierarchy, farting is near the bottom, <clears throat> along with cat jugglers and clowns, says Dawson. I don't think a farter can sustain a regular legion of fans. Once you've seen the act, your primary motive for going back is to take your friends and watch their expressions. And still does. The tradition of the flatulist didn't die with Le Petomain, although it is struggling. Paul Oldfield, known professionally as Mr. Methane, has been a performing flatulist since 1991. His Facebook fan page, nearly 4,000 likes, features video clips of his 2009 performance on Britain's Got Talent. Oldfield didn't win, which would have meant he performed at the Royal Variety Show for the Queen. One wonders how modern royalty would react to his talents. The cover picture features lanky 6-foot-7-inch Oldfield in his purple and green superhero costume, his arms around several attractive young women. Speaking on the phone from his home in the north of England, Oldfield can't stop can't seem to stop himself from making fart-related puns. He tends to be long-winded, sorry, but he's got a good story to tell and a kind northern accent. Oldfield, like Le Petoman before him, is able to inhale air into his sphincter and then push it back out again in, he says, three tones, and without smell, given that the air is not coming from digesting food in his stomach. How exactly he inhales is hard to explain, he says. It's a combination of relaxing and tightening his sphincter and diaphragm that he can just do. You're going in reverse, so to speak. You draw the air into your colon and then you trap it off and then you tighten the sphincter muscle. You then squeeze it out and you can alter the sound, he says. A bit like blowing raspberries with your mouth. It's physically demanding work, which means that he exercises frequently, usually doing yoga and stretches. You need to stay farting fit, don't you? He deadpans. The puns are endless, aren't they? But you can't laugh, he cautioned. You're using your diaphragm. Once the top end is laughing uncontrollably, there's no control downstairs. It's hard enough as it is when you're being serious. According to Oldfield, he discovered his talent doing yoga in his teens. In the full lotus position, he adds. And used to pull pranks at school during lunchtime for pocket money. After a brief career as a train engineer, he had the eureka moment. What the hell? Wouldn't it be good? I'll see if I can make a living as a professional farter. Oldfield adopted a superhero persona, Mr. Methane, complete with green cape and mask, perfected his pun-filled patter, and began performing at friends' parties, university end-of-year bashes, and corporate events. One of his first big gigs was at the Screaming Beaver in Macclesfield in Cheshire, a club that had seen the likes of Steve Coogan perform. For some reason, they kept getting these different groundbreaking acts, and they thought I would be one of these groundbreaking acts, but as it was, I was just a windbreaking act, he says. <sighs> gigs led to other gigs, and soon Mr. Methane was on TV, doing the late-night chat show circuit around Europe. 
He, like the few other professional farters, was a favorite of shock jock radio hosts, including Howard Stern, throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. He's done television shows across the world, appeared in adverts for Cadbury's Chocolate and guest starred on sitcoms, performed at the Reading Festival and Edinburgh Fringe, even made a Christmas album. Sinead O'Connor was reportedly a fan and ordered 20 copies each of his MrMethane.com album, Mary Methane, and his Let's Rip DVD. But in many ways, he's a performer from a long past era when variety shows and music halls were thriving, jazz came in trios, and pubs and clubs were willing to take a chance on a performer with an outre talent. I'd probably have had a lot more live work in the 60s and 70s and maybe the 80s, so maybe I have come too late, he agrees. And now, while the odd TV gig still comes in, much of his bread-and-butter work has dried up, due in some part, he believes, to YouTube. Though Oldfield's act is almost tailor-made for social sharing, the new internet era hasn't been a positive. The constant stream of crazy online streaming clips has eliminated the need for clubs to book him. While we've been chatting, there will be all these people who've watched clips of me, and that's the mind-blowing thing about the internet. You're being watched much more than you'd ever have been in the past, he reflected. Now you're being watched, and you're not earning any money. It's not even being exploited, it's being consumed, and you're not earning any money from it. It's a strange one. What he'll do next, he doesn't know. In the short term, at least, he's been asked to make a video of himself farting along to Macarena, a request with several layers of tastelessness. Long term, he might be about to hang up his green mask and purple fart shorts. I'm 49. I'll be 50 next year. Maybe it's time for a new mini-methane who can take it into the new era, he muses. I've been telling a joke basically with one punchline, and somehow I've been able to tell it for about 25 years as a performer, so... I don't think I've done too bad. Uh, If you enjoyed that article, the links are in the show notes and you can check out. There are some really interesting pictures as well along with that. Our next article today, Why British English is Full of Silly Sounding Words, comes from Christine Rowe of the BBC. That wasik dared to gazump me. I'm gobsmacked by the sticky wicket full of godswallop that's gone pear-shaped. That sentence may not sound serious, but the situation it describes is. Translated into standard English, it would be something like, That idiot dared to offer more money for the house after my offer already had been accepted. I'm shocked by this tricky situation full of nonsense that's gone awry. Shakespeare, this isn't. The first sentence sounds so peculiar to certain ears, not just because of the mangling of parts of speech. It's also full of words with origins ranging from the 1700s to the 1980s that have two qualities in common. They're all rather silly sounding, and they're all British English. British English is full of whimsical terms like these. They reflect the UK's cultural appreciation of wit, a long tradition of literary inventiveness, and Britain's fluctuating global influence over the centuries. Whimsical words like these are formed in a number of ways. These include blends of other words, example, Oxbridge from Oxford and Cambridge, reduplicatives, which repeat sounds or parts of words, higgledy-piggledy, back formations, which often remove the suffix of their originating word, like kempt from unkempt, and, of course, sheer nonsense, like Roald Dahl's invention, Gobblefunk. 
These types of coinages aren't unique to English, let alone British English. But the relative simplicity of English words may lend itself to this kind of play, says Anatoly Lieberman, professor of languages at the University of Minnesota and an etymology blogger for Oxford University Press. English is largely a monosyllabic language come, go, take, big, laugh, and so forth, he says. This makes such games easy. Especially characteristic of these formations in British English is the way they reflect a certain kind of humor. Pop anthropologist Kate Fox has written about the English ban on earnestness and aversion to taking things too seriously, and the pervasiveness of humor in social interaction. This humor is of a particular kind, self-deprecating and given to understatement and irony. It's unsurprising that this national trait has made its way into the language. Romantic activities like snog and shag are spoken of in childish terms. Classic dishes are made to sound deliberately unappetizing. For example, a dead man's arm is actually a rolled cake filled with jam. And there's a healthy appetite for nonsensical ambiguity. To take just one example, Ladybird is a bugbear of perplexed Americans who wonder, although their version of the word is only slightly more sensible, why Ladybird? Why not Ladybug? This hints at a gleeful will- will- willingness in British English to dispense with literal meaning. Food, for instance, is a rich vein of words like this. Fairy cake, toad in the hole, and jacket potato have nothing to do with fairies, toads, and jackets. There's a long tradition in British English of inventing words just for the fun of it. Eminent linguist David Crystal writes in the story of English in 100 Words that a gaggle of geese and unkindness of ravens and other collective nouns of this ilk were created in the 15th century. He speculates that this was done deliberately for comic effect, giving rise to a superfluity of nuns, pun intended. There were more people writing, and there were no dictionaries to act as a stabilizing influence, he says. And also, side note, David and Ben Crystal have a wonderful book called The Shakespeare Miscellany, which I will be covering in a future episode. While whimsical British terms have been coined in every era, certain periods have been especially fruitful. According to Crystal, linguistic inventiveness, particularly of a playful kind, seems to have peaked in the Elizabethan era. This is partly due to the enduring influence of wordsmiths like Shakespeare and his fellow dramatists. Meanwhile, Crystal adds, at this time there were more people writing, with pressure to produce new plays to feed the daily demands of the new theaters, and there were no dictionaries to act as a stabilizing influence. This created a climate of lexical creativity, which we can thank for words like balderdash, meaning appropriately a nonsense word or idea. Since Shakespeare, British writers from Charles Dickens with his whiz-bang and Lewis Carroll who coined Mimsy to J.K. Rowling with Muggle and, side note, she is brilliant with coming up with words. I mean, think about the memory storage tool, the pensive. If you look at how it's spelled, oh, she's just, she's just brilliant. I love her so much. <clears throat> to J.K. Rowling with Muggle have continued to enliven English vocabulary. As Lieberman points out, it's not that these authors had a monopoly on childlike wit. 
Rather, historically, British English's influence was mainly exercised by great authors, he says. The joys and charm of British English have to be sought in the works of the great wits of various epochs. For comparison, in the U.S., the only figure of comparable size in this respect is Mark Twain. Of course, there is a risk of over-interpreting the relationship between culture and vocabulary. Fanciful terms can be found in all varieties of English. Linguists also have written about how terms like face like a dropped pie and cultural cringe reflect an Australian culture of informality and mateship. To make matters more complex, the border between British and American English, the two most influential forms of English, is fairly blurry. In fact, many of the words popularly believed to stem from one country actually originated in the other. The University of Sussex's Lynn Murphy, who has a blog and a forthcoming book about differences between U.S. and U.K. English, notes that many Americans incorrectly think bumbershoot and poppycock are British words. That's simply, she says, because a lot of Americans stereotype the British as having silly words. So words that fit that expectation are the, words, are the ones that gain a great deal of currency overseas. This is also true of terms that mainly sound comical due to their difference from U.S. terms. Murphy explains that Americans love slang with a non-flattened short O sound such as kosh, bollocks, and dog's body because that's a sound that Americans don't make. Even off-color words can come to seem charming, if they're sufficiently British and familiar. For instance, there were reports that before James Corden started hosting his late-night chat show in the U.S., his network instructed him that shag and squiffy were acceptable, but potentially puzzling words like knackered weren't. Today, a great deal of lexical innovation in English is coming from multilingual places, often former British colonies. One habit is transforming the meaning of British or American words. For example, the word deadwood means unproductive civil servant in Botswanan English. Another is coining words that refer to locally specific situations, like killer litter in Singaporean English, referring to the dangerous practice of throwing objects off tall buildings. Not all of these new Englishes are deliberately aiming to be humorous. Take Nigerian English, for example, with its delightful coinages like go slow for traffic jam. Farouk Kirogi of Kennesaw State University in the U.S. has written extensively about Nigerian English. He says that the humor of terms like go slow and archaic turns of phrase like men of the underworld rather than criminals is inadvertent. One of the abiding features of Nigerian English is excessive lexical formality, even in informal context, which produces unintended comical effects in native speaker ears, he notes. There is nothing in Nigerian English that is purposely humorous. But unfamiliarity and unexpectedness can give this kind of creativity a comic effect. And in Nigeria, Kirogi explains... Unintentional humor almost always occurs when Nigerian English, which is fundamentally rooted in British English, collides with American English. However, given the continued primacy of British and American English, amusing words from other forms of English have been slow to reach the global mainstream. This may change, though. With the increasing influence of Nigerian and Indian cinema, for instance, it may only be a matter of time before a word like prepone, an antonym of postpone in Indian English, enters the vocabulary of British English speakers. Now, 
let's move on to a slightly stranger, more serious topic. For the first time in a long time, I've given up on a book that I set out to read. This is unusual for me, but as I told a friend who was struggling to get through something that she wasn't enjoying, life is too short to waste on a book you don't really want to read. I may be paraphrasing, but you get the idea. Here's the thing. The book in question for me has a really interesting premise and is incredibly well-written and obviously meticulously researched. I'm just not that into it. I think it's a mix of my ADHD and what's going on in my own little world right now, but I've read enough of it to give you a taste of what you'll find inside in case it's something you think you might enjoy. It's called The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore, and you know how they say truth is stranger than fiction? Well, yeah, that's a thing. William Moulton Marston was, among other things, the developer of the first lie detector test, a feminist, professor, polygamist, and, oh yeah, the creator of Wonder Woman. There's actually a film coming out in October about all of this called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which features Luke Evans, also known as Gaston in the Disney live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, as Professor William Moulton Marston. Side note, I love how Hollywood is sometimes incapable of accurately portraying what a historical figure actually looked like in most cases. I know it's shallow of me to point it out, but the real Professor Marston did not have the decimating good looks that Mr. Evans possesses. I'm just saying. From what I can tell, the film portrays the polyamorous relationship between Marston, his wife Elizabeth Holloway, and their mistress, Olive Byrne, who took care of the children as part of the arrangement Marston made with Holloway in order to have her blessing to take a mistress and install her in their house. Holloway had the same level of education as Marston, though, because she was a woman, not the same degrees and opportunities, and she desperately wanted a fulfilling career and a family. So when Marston started seeing Byrne and issued the ultimatum that Holloway could accept them both or leave him, she turned the situation to her advantage. From what I've been able to gather, Holloway and Byrne did come to have a very loving and mutually beneficial relationship as well and stayed together after Marston passed away. Incidentally, in another crazy, that's-so-random twist to this story, Olive Byrne was the niece of Margaret Sanger, known for founding the organization we now refer to as Planned Parenthood. Byrne didn't wear a wedding ring, but she was never seen without a pair of bracelets given to her by Marston. A pair of bracelets. Just like Wonder Woman had her cuffs. Other random tie-ins and factoids? You know how Wonder Woman only loses her strength when a man is able to chain her? That's a reference to a couple of things. One being Marston's interest in BDSM, and the other is a nod to the suffrage movement's use of chain imagery, which was, in turn, inspired by women in the abolitionist movement in the previous century. On top of that, Marston and his lie detector test, not to be confused with the polygraph, by the way, were major players in a Supreme Court case, Fry versus the United States, in 1923. It's just a crazy, convoluted story with several twists and turns that I'm sure I've only barely scratched the surface of. There is a link to Lepore's book on Amazon in the show notes if you're intrigued, and 
I came across an interesting word of the day the other day in the dictionary.com app that I'd like to share with you, thanks to its ties to one of today's minor topics. Come stalkery is the overzealous moral censorship of the fine arts and literature, often mistaking outspokenly honest works for salacious ones. The origin comes from Anthony Comstock, uh, born in 1844, died in 1915. He was a reformer of American public morals and a U.S. postal inspector who was stoutly defended by church-based groups and loudly denounced by civil liberties organizations. In 1873, he founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. That same year, Comstock was also responsible for passage of the federal Comstock Law, which criminalized the use of the U.S. Postal Service to send erotica, contraceptives, and sex toys. Comstock's many victims included George Bernard Shaw, the Russian-born American anarchist Emma Goldman, and the nurse and sex educator Margaret Sanger, also known as the founder of Planned Parenthood. Comstockery appeared in an editorial in the New York Times in December 1895. That's it for now. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do me a solid and rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. You can also email questions or suggestions to bluestockingpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.